Good morning, GBC family. Welcome to Baptism Sunday. Amen. My name is Jason Wallace. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Groton Bible Chapel, and I have the privilege of closing out our Practical Matters series. So this will be the last Sunday we talk in Deuteronomy until toward the end of January. And I have to say, I am really happy to be talking on this chapter. And I'll tell you why for two reasons. Number one, there is nothing weird in this chapter. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, Zach, if you've been over here uh, the last five weeks, uh, Zach and Gary have carried us through some really difficult things. Uh, I don't have to talk about uh, divorce. I don't have to talk about the occult. I don't have to talk about getting your hand chopped for hitting someone in the privates. I don't have to talk about any of that. So I'm really thankful for that. The second reason is that this chapter is incredibly practical. You know, obviously this, this series is called Practical Matters, and Zach and Gary have been able to draw out the practical nature of these teachings, even these weird things. We find they apply to us today, and they've done a wonderful job about that. But this chapter in particular is extremely practical. And I want to show the nature of that by asking, or by putting it this way. When I became a Christian, when I gave my life to Christ, I had this period of time during which I said, now what? What do I do now? I just surrendered my life to Christ. What's next? That's a hard thing to, to wrestle with. And maybe you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe this is something that you're exploring or something that you're considering for yourself. And you might wonder what comes after the point of salvation? What, what comes next? So we're going to try to answer those questions today. Practically speaking, we're actually going to find that this chapter can serve as a blueprint for the life of a Christian, both as an individual and as part of a community. So there's two main themes to this chapter, two main messages that God has for us in this text. And the first is that as individuals, we are to engage with God in such a way as to put him first in everything. We're going to see that in this text. Um, that's a very abstract thing, putting God first. Kind of hard to wrap your head around. So we're going to spend some time making that practical. The second thing is once we have put God first in our lives as part of a community, there is an incredible dignity in how we relate to one another, how we operate as a big C church, as a covenant people. Uh, and the responsibility that we have to one another is a sacred thing. So we're going to call this the dignity of community. So let's get started. Uh, if you've already opened to chapter 26, we're actually going to start with verse 4. Uh, we're going to loop back to the beginning of the chapter in a few minutes, but we're going to start with verse 4 this morning. So what we're seeing here in, in this chapter is God is teaching his people to remember where they've come from. They are at the border of the land that God has promised them. Uh, and they're about to step foot in this place that's been anticipated for decades. And God has them pause. And Moses issues instructions for what they're supposed to do once they enter the promised land. They're entering with a plan that God is laying out for them. And this plan has a very important purpose, which is to ensure that the people of Israel remember that they are a people who came from bondage, who have been freed from bondage. So starting in verse four, 
The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. The father spoken of here is Jacob. And his parents were, in fact, nomads in Aramea, or what's now Syria. And Jacob spent 20 years with them in Syria. So this, this is a, a factual statement, um, but there's actually an added meaning to it. By beginning their proclamation to God with the statement, my father was a wandering Aramean, the nation of Israel was acknowledging that the beginning of their journey was one of utter weakness. They had no place or standing in the world of any kind of power. During this journey, starting again in verse 6, but the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a great terror and with signs and wonders, he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. So this is the entire arc of history for the people of God, from their extremely humble beginnings to their establishment as a powerful nation. And they acknowledge in their statement to him the reality that absolutely none of what they had now would have been possible without God. Now, that's certainly an interesting thing to consider, an interesting intellectual exercise, but what does it mean to us? Why would we bother studying it? Well, we as individuals are born into a sinful nature. We are powerless over it, just as the people of Israel were powerless in Egypt. We can't even begin to free ourselves from that nature. It's overwhelming and insurmountable. But God provides a way. He calls us out of it, parting the Red Sea, so to speak, for us. And he defeats the enemy that is sin and death and delivers us from it. We are powerless to achieve anything of eternal value ourselves. And acknowledging that is necessary in our approach to God. This principle is actually laid out in the first beatitude spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 Verse 3, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the poor in spirit? What are the poor in spirit? Well, the poor in spirit means acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy and that our entire reliance is on the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's a saving faith, a faith that results in salvation a faith that recognizes that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is a work that is entirely finished. We have nothing to offer that completes that work. It's already completed. Because God in his great mercy has called us and chosen us, we can be free. We can be delivered from the bondage of sin. We can be brought to the promised land, which for them was a physical place, but for us, is eternal salvation and an abundant life in Christ while we are still here. It's here 
that we're going to circle back to the beginning of the chapter to see how God instructs the people to respond once they've entered the promised land. And that response is, in, is centered on generosity, both to God and to each other. So starting in verse 1, when you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it. I want to stop halfway through this sentence because there's something really important in that opening statement. Since the promised land pictures salvation for us, the question for us that God is asking in this, have you received the gift, the gift of eternal life and have you settled in and taken possession of it? That's a big question. If I handed each of you the keys and the title to a car in the parking lot, you could walk out the back door and walk away. And every day you could walk by that car and never get in and never take it, never actually make it your own. Are you doing that with what God has given you? Are you neglecting to take a hold of the reality that you are saved? Today is Baptism Sunday, and baptism is one way in which we settle in and take a hold of the promise of God by outwardly and publicly identifying in the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross by being obediently baptized. There's lots of other ways in which we can settle in and take possession. There's a lot more we could say, but I want to leave you to wrestle with that. Have you taken possession of your faith? Have you settled into it? So back to our text. The Israelites are instructed that once they have entered the promised land and taken possession of it and settled into it, they are to, verse 2, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. So once they've gathered the first harvest, they're to remember that the Lord promised them that they would be here in this land and that it would belong to them and that they would live and flourish here. For us, there is so much spiritual depth, depth and application here. God promised us, he declared to us in Revelations chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. And for those who have let him in, he has made good on that promise. And the harvest for us is immediate. Our lives immediately begin to bear fruit. For the Israelites, for the first time in the history of their nation, they would cease to be a wandering tribe without a home and have a place to call their own. And they were to mark the very beginning of that time by remembering that God had promised it to them and that he had delivered on that promise. They were not to rush past this time, looking past God and only at his gift. That would have been easy to do. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They just want to eat the first harvest of food that they've labored to produce on land that they actually, for the first time in their history, can call their own. But God says, wait, set aside the first of it, and in doing so, remember what I have done for you. The practical lesson in this for us is we have been freed from the bondage of sin that we had no hope of escaping on our own and had that bondage replaced with an unimaginably valuable gift, the kingdom of God and eternal life in it. Not only should we not forget that, 
but we should make sure that it's the very first thing we, rem we remember in everything that we do. So that's our first theme for today. God is first. When we acknowledge what we have possession of, whether it's a physical possession like money or a car or our home or something not as tangible like our intellect, our strength, our time, our energy, our talent, remember that it is all a gift from God, just like the land was for Israel. The truth is we aren't actually the owner creator of anything. We are simply the temporary steward of whatever God has given us. Even the breath inside of our lungs that is sustaining our very own lives at this moment is something that in a moment we'll have to give back. We can release that breath through our vocal cords with words that encourage someone or words that destroy someone. We can praise and honor God with those words or we can curse him. What we do with what we are temporary stewards of matters. If we are obedient to God in this spiritual command to bring the first fruits to God, if we can practice that faithfully and regularly, then we remain in a constant state of acknowledgement of our reliance upon God. And that alone keeps us in what Jesus Christ called the faith of a child which is rather important, as he explains in Matthew chapter 18. He says, truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If any of you have experienced having the love of a child, then you've seen what the picture of what this looks like. When a child brings a gift to someone that they love, the excitement and glee with which they present that gift as a type of offering to the one that they love and depend upon is a beautiful thing to behold. Would that gift ever be anything other than the best that they have to offer? We have this example to follow. What we give to God is not out of compulsion or guilt or pride. It's purely out of love and given joyfully the best of what we are and have. Here's the truth. When we're talking about this book, this book right here, God puts all this history into scripture to remind us by way of all those who've come before us that the only way to be is like children. Remember the discussion Jesus had with his disciples. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we go about daily living, several things happen to us. We grow more confident in our own ability to affect outcomes. We grow stronger. We grow in knowledge, in wisdom, in understanding, in experience. And all of that has a very dangerous and destructive effect on us. It makes us overconfident. Some philosophy right there. What's the problem with that? Well, the further we get into the realm of self-confidence, the deeper we've gotten into a forest of self-deception and the farther we get away from reliance upon God. 
being childlike means being reliant, at least in its purest form. And that's what we're called to. Or I should say, that's what we're called back to. Remember what he said, unless you turn and become like little children. That's the idea that God, that offering God our best is the standard. Children don't always do that, but that's the standard. Our best, not our leftovers. So returning to our text, starting in verse 12, we see here that we also have a responsibility to care for each other. And I want to be clear here, this is only partially about giving to the church. This is much more about how we are generous with what we have for those who are in need. So verse 12, when you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may, be, they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then you will say in the presence of the Lord, I have taken the consecrated portion out of my house. I have also given it to the Levites, resident aliens, fatherless children, and widows, according to all the commands you gave me. I have not violated or forgotten your commands. I have not eaten any of it while in mourning or removed any of it while unclean or offered any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel in the land you have given us as you promised an oath to your ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. I want to jump into the New Testament for a moment in order to apply this. And we're going to start with 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Paul instructs Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Here at GBC, we as a, a community help each other on a regular basis in tremendous ways. Several months ago, you may remember, there was a shortage of baby formula. While it would have been far easier and safer and more convenient to hang on to an abundance, folks in this church shared formula and even offered to share breast milk for folks in need. That is a beautiful picture of sacrificial giving. There have been times when trees have fallen in the yards of folks here at GBC who didn't have the ability to, cl to clear them. And in response to that, swarms of folks have showed up in uh, not giving of their extra time, but of valuable time, sometimes their only day off. And within a few hours, all that was left was sawdust. We are a church that responds quickly and is obedient to that call, and I can tell you it's a beautiful thing to see. Being a light in the world is a very abstract thing to figure out how to do, but generosity is a sure way to do it. However, in a world full of distraction and temptation, for any number of reasons, generosity can be difficult. One thing I find fascinating is that during the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.5% of their income. Compare that to today, where Christians give, on average, 2.5%. Our problem isn't that we don't have enough. 
It's just that somehow our priorities are just a little different. Just as a small illustration of that, something I've noticed to an alarming degree, the self-storage industry, as we know it, started in 1964, and now these things are everywhere. Just since 1993, construction spend on self-storage units has, has increased from $100 million to $5 billion per year. Americans spend $38 billion per year just to store our extra stuff. We have so much stuff, and yet we give a third less in a t than in a time in which people had almost nothing. There are so many things that get in the way of generosity, from a scarcity mindset to keeping up with the Joneses to outright hoarding. In my basement right now, my wife will verify this, we have almost come to the end of a package of very fancy embossed napkins that I bought in May of 2020 because that's all that was left on the shelves. <laughs> Pretty interesting. So if the call to Christians is to look different from the rest of this world, in this particular area, sometimes we just don't. Our call is to look different by putting God first in our lives and by elevating our responsibility to each other to the degree that the world will look at us and see that we as a community live with dignity. We live different. And people will look at us and say, why? And we'll say, because we're his. We're gonna read the final section of this chapter this is God's statement. This is God's statement to the people of Israel, which brings to a close the last nine chapters, and it closes out our Practical Matters series. So read with me in verse 17. Today you have affirmed that the Lord is your God and that you will keep his ways, will walk in his ways, keep his statutes, commands, and ordinances, and obey him. And today the Lord has affirmed that you are his own possession that as he promised you, that you are to keep all his commands, that he will elevate you to praise, fame, and glory above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a holy people to the Lord your God as he promised. So for those of us who've been saved by the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross, we are now in the promised land. And he calls us to daily to bring our first fruits to him, the very best of ourselves, of what we have to offer. And that mainly comes in the form of obedience. Obedience in our thoughts, by taking every thought captive to Christ. Obedience in our words, by guarding what crosses our lips. Obedience in our actions, by letting the command to love one another as Christ loves us, be the singular guide which instructs us in how to behave toward those around us. Why? Because we're his. And in particular to how that relates today, November 27th, being obedient to the command to be baptized. The first fruits of keeping God at the forefront of our minds is coupled together with the command to openly identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through baptism. It is one of the great celebrations of Christians in community. Baptism is an outward 
public and symbolic picture of what has already taken place in the hearts of those who have been saved. It serves as a symbol, but it also serves as a witness to each one of us that those who are baptized this weekend testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to his saving power in their lives. And for that reason, we're going to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what you are doing here today. We're so thankful for the five people who were baptized in first service and for the four people who will will be baptized today, Father. They have given their lives to you, and we thank you for the picture of what we're about to witness. Lord, we are just so full of praise that we have this place that we can gather together in safety and just praise you. Lord, would you continue to bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.